Hey guys, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is David Dorner, and I am the teaching pastor here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it is so good to be with you. Our mission in this world is to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus for a lifetime or if your journey's just begun, we hope that this message will speak powerfully to your heart, that it will reveal something that God desires to cultivate in your life, and that you'll be drawn to the person of Jesus as a result. We hope these next few moments encourage you, challenge you, and inspire you to be who God has created you to be. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you again. If you're uh, just joining us online as well, it's great to have you with us. We've been talking about parenting the last few weeks, and it seems like really appropriate with school about to start for uh, many of us in this next week and with Child Dedication Sunday. Uh, we've been talking, um, we're in week four of this series we're calling Raising the Perfect Parent. And uh, that's meant to be a joke a little bit. We know there's no such thing as a perfect parent. We know that uh, God is the only perfect father that there is. But what we've been talking about is this idea that um, it's really the way parenting works is God uses our kids to raise us up. God uses the experiences, sometimes even the difficult experiences in our homes and our lives to turn us toward him and turn our hearts toward him. Um, And so we've been talking about what does it mean to have a Christ-centered family? What does it mean to parent from a place of of being Christ-centered? And so I'm excited to continue in week number four as we look at that together. I'll get us into uh, this morning in this way. I wonder how many of you ever had one of these in your home? Uh, Swear word jar, either in your home growing up or in your home right now if you've got kids in your home. Only a couple of you. Okay, we, we had one of these when my boys were little. Uh, my wife, Carrie, and I have four boys, and so uh, we had the swear jar. It sat on the kitchen counter. It looked very much like this. It says, you say it, you pay it. So the idea was if someone got caught saying a swear word, they would have to contribute allowance money or whatever it was to this. And so this swear jar, it was just kind of a way of helping us make better decisions about the way that we talk to each other, the way that we speak to one another in our home. And, and full disclosure, I had to contribute to this jar on, on a few different occasions. My boys called me out. That's the amazing thing about your kids. They don't let you get away with anything. And um, so one of my favorite stories to tell, and some of you have heard me tell this story before, uh, but I remember Carrie and I were sitting in the kitchen one morning and our oldest son, Alan, he was about seven years old at the time, he comes down the stairs and as soon as he walks in the room, Carrie and I can just tell he's just mad. I mean, his body language, his face expressions, everything, he's just, ugh, he's just mad. And so he walks over to the kitchen counter, walks over to the swear jar and he's got his piggy bank and he just begins to empty his piggy bank into the swear jar. He's taking stuff out of his pockets. He's throwing all his money in the swear jar. And then he turns around and kind of stomps off. And I stopped. I said, Alan, what is the matter? What, what is going on? What are you doing? And he turns around to his mother and I, and he says, Andrew is really making me mad. And there's some things I want to say to him. And then he turns around and stomps off. He prepaid for his swear words that he wanted to say, <laughs> which was just awesome. I, I love that story. But I love it because that's really not the way it works, right? In our, in our homes, that's really not the way it works with, with our language, with our words, the way that we speak to one another. The truth of the matter is, we actually don't pay for the words, the hurtful things that we say to one another in our homes. We don't pay for those things. The truth of the matter is, it's our family members who pay for the words that we speak, isn't it? And in fact, the hurtful words that are spoken in our homes oftentimes reverberate and echo throughout our entire lives. 
For some of you, even right now as adults, something's coming to your mind of something that was said to you or spoken over you as a child in your home that is still playing itself out in your life. And I've had moments where I've said things out of anger, where I just lost my temper to my boys, to my wife, There's things I wish I could take back, but I can't. And this happens all the times in our, in our home. And so today what we're talking about is we're talking about the volcano parent. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about the lawnmower parent. We've looked at last week, the dry cleaner parent. Today, we're talking about the volcano parent. The volcano parent, this is the parent that uh, can erupt without hardly any warning at all and just explosively gets angry, sometimes for no reason at all. You don't even know it's coming. And this, this parent, there really is no reasoning or logic with this parent who is basically what they're dealing with is deeper emotional issues beyond their child, beyond the moment that they're in. They're carrying unprocessed wounds and things from their own past into the relationship with their kids. And so today we're going to talk about why does this happen? Why do we become volcano parents? And I want to talk about how do you, what do you do about it? How do you deal with this? So whether you yourself are a parent right now and you know, man, you've got this tendency to explode and erupt, maybe you're married to someone who is a volcano parent, uh, or maybe you grew up in the home of a volcano parent and you're still trying to figure out how do I deal with that even now? How do I deal with that person even now? We're going to talk about that and here's what we're going to do. I want to follow along, if I could, with a a storyline of a family in scripture very early on in the story of the Bible. We're going to go all the way to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis and we're going to see the way that this, uh, this idea plays itself out, even in some of the earliest families in the story of Scripture. And I hope we're going to see ourselves a little bit and our own humanity a little bit in these characters. And so in Genesis chapter 2, what you have is Adam and Eve, the very first two humans. And in Genesis 2.24, you have the verse in the Bible, which is where we get kind of the foundation for marriage and family. It's, it's where God lays the foundation for marriage and family. It says this. If you've been to weddings, I bet you've heard this verse read a, a million times at weddings. It says that that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So right there in the beginning of the Bible, there's this idea of here's how a new family is created. Here's how marriage and family works. A man will leave his mother and father. He'll be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. They will start a new union and a new family. That's the way God designed it to work for us. Now, the problem is, oftentimes, we actually don't leave our mother and father uh, and be united uh, to our spouse. What happens oftentimes is we end up dragging unprocessed wounds, dragging things that were said to us, spoken to us, even as children, and we drag all these things into our current family. Our families of origin kind of have this way of trickling in and speaking into our current families And we often end up bringing a lot of baggage into the families that we have today. And so if you read the story of the Bible, Adam and Eve have two sons. Anybody remember their names? Cain and Abel. That's right. And even if you didn't grow up in church, I bet you have heard the story of Cain and Abel because we've talked about it. It's become such a part of the fabric of our culture. The story happens. Cain and Abel are both brothers. Abel brings a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. Cain brings a a sacrifice that's not pleasing to God. Cain is an angry, violent person. He's a volcano. He gets upset. He gets angry. And in anger, he strikes out and he kills his brother. And it's the first murder that you find in the entire Bible. It's the first instance of a human being taking the life of another human being. 
And what's amazing about the story of Cain and Abel is right after Cain kills Abel, it's this awful moment in the story of humanity, God does this beautiful thing for Cain. God steps in in this act of grace, in this act of mercy. God steps into the story of Cain and what God says is, if anyone decides to kill Cain, if anyone decides to get revenge on Cain for what he did and pay him back for killing his brother, I will avenge him seven times. That's what God says. Seven is a, in Jewish consciousness is a number of wholeness, it's a number of completeness. And God says, if anyone tries to kill Cain for what he did, I'm going to avenge him seven times. What God was trying to do there is he was trying to step in the story of humanity to stop revenge killing and to show an act of grace to Cain, even though he didn't deserve it. And he was trying to stop this cycle of redemptive violence that happens in our world and that we see all around us all the time where revenge kind of takes over and we go after one another. So Cain is allowed to live, he, he continues to live, and there are generations that are born to Cain's line. So you get a, a couple chapters into the story, we're in Genesis chapter 4, uh, several generations later as a man named Lamech that's born from Cain's family line. And this is what it says in, in Genesis 4.19 about Lamech. It says, Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. So right there, we see there, there's something broken already. Right, remember we just read Genesis 2.24, just two chapters before this says, the whole foundation for marriage, the whole foundation for family is a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, singular, not plural, just one, and the two of them will become one flesh. And so already by chapter four, you see Lamech has gone outside of that. There's this progression of sin that's taking place with each kind of progressive family generation that's happening. Now you actually have a man who marries two women, which was not God's design. By the way, some of you have heard me say this before. I always find it funny. People will say to me, you know, pastor, I just, I want to have a biblical marriage. Saying, can you, you need to preach on what it means to have a biblical marriage. People need to know what it means to have a biblical marriage. Whenever people say that to me, I always laugh and I want to say, have you read the Bible? Have you actually ever read the Bible? What the Bible actually gives us in terms of a biblical marriage is it doesn't give us like picture after picture of a good marriage, a holy marriage, a godly marriage. What the Bible actually gives us is story after story after story of how human beings in their brokenness, in their sin, go outside of what God created and take things in a direction that God didn't intend and further break and damage each other. That's what the Bible actually gives us over and over again. And the whole reason for that, stories like Lamech, stories over and over again of marriages that are broken in the Bible, what they're actually supposed to do is they're actually supposed to point away from themselves and point towards someone who has yet to come in the story one who will be the solution to it all. We'll get to him in just a minute. So Lamech marries two women. He marries these two wives, and then uh, he makes this statement. He makes this speech to them, which is recorded here in verse 23. And essentially uh, what he says is, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. Isn't that the way you men talk to your wives? You walk in the room, hear my words now. <laughs> He's talking to his wives, and here's what he says. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Now, this is a really significant 
moment here in the scripture. He's talking to his wives. Keep this in mind. He's speaking to his family members. And what he's saying, what we're seeing here is that Cain's sin has translated down. It's been passed down through his family line to Lamech. Lamech's way of handling conflict has visited itself upon uh, Lamech. And he's saying, basically, I'm a volcano. That's what he's saying to his wives. He's saying, if someone wounds me, a man wounded me, and so I killed him. That's what I did. And he wants his wives to know this. He's saying, if somebody messes with me, I'm going to kill him. If you set off a pop rocket against me, I'm going to respond with a nuclear warhead. And he's basically saying to his wives, you need to understand our home is not a safe place. You need to understand I am not someone to be messed with. I, I am not a safe person. He wants them to understand the situation that they're in. But then he goes a step further. He doesn't just say, uh, I'm going to do what Cain did. He basically takes this promise that God made where God stepped into the story to show grace to Cain and God to stop this cycle of redemptive violence and revenge. God says, if anyone kills Cain for what he did, I will avenge him seven times. And Lamech takes it way further and he basically says, well, if God said that about Cain, then I guess I'm going to say, if anybody hurts Lamech, I'm going to avenge myself 77 times. It's not God saying this. This is Lamech saying this about himself. I'm going to avenge myself. I'm going to go way beyond what God ever said. I'm going to avenge myself 77 times. And this is where we see ourselves. We see the truth about our families a little bit here. And what happens is oftentimes the destructive, dysfunctional patterns that were in our homes, in our families of origins, oftentimes have a way of being passed down through the generations, but not just being passed down, but being multiplied. They get more and more powerful. The expressions get more and more destructive. And this cycle of anger, this cycle of revenge, it just has a way of playing itself out in the way that we communicate, in expectations we have of family members and the way they should act or shouldn't act. And whenever conflict arises and how we try to resolve conflict or don't resolve conflict, those things oftentimes are passed down and multiplied from our families. Now, good things can be passed down and multiplied as well. And, that, and that's, a, that's the hope that we have. That's a great thing. When good things are passed down, those can be multiplied as well. But oftentimes, it's, it's our destructive patterns. It's the things that are broken that we actually carry with us into our families. And that's what you see happening here in the story of Lamech. This is why it took you one day to move out of your parents' house. But years later, you're realizing your parents' house still hasn't moved out of you. In one day, you can move out of your parents' house. But for the rest of your life, your, your parents' house is still kind of moving out of you. Uh, Father Richard Rory, he's a Catholic priest, um, said this, I don't agree with everything in his theology, but I, I believe this statement is such a, a, a piece of truth. He said, you will either transform your pain or you will transmit your pain. You will either transform your pain, your wounds, or you will end up transmitting your pain and your wounds to your kids, to your family, to where you find yourself at. So, we have to, at some point, find a way to allow God to transform our pain if we don't want it to just be transmitted into our families. I have a good friend. He's a Christian counselor, 
And he, he talks about how you can tell when this is happening, how you can tell when you're actually transmitting your wounds. And he has this great tool he uses with people. He talks about pay attention to your 10 and 2 responses. That's what he calls it, 10 and 2 responses. And what he means by that is, you know, you're in your house, something happens, somebody does something, there's conflict. Your response to it should maybe be a 2 on the Richter scale, but it's a 10. You just explode. You lose your mind on that person. And like a volcano, you just erupt. And, and my friend says, pay very close attention, uh, you know, dissect those moments when your response was a 10 when really it should have been a 2. So your daughter rolls her eyes at you. Uh, your son leaves a mess again for you to clean up. Um, or, you know, just, just something simple, something not, not even that big of a deal happens in your home. Your response should be a two, but you explode. You made dinner, you cleaned it up, nobody even noticed, nobody even said anything. Those kind of things frustrate any of us. They, they upset any of us. But when your reaction is a 10, here's what my friend would say. He, he, he says, what's happening there in those moments is that experience, whatever it is, is actually touching something from your past. It's touching a place of brokenness, a place of woundedness from your past, from your history that, that hasn't been transformed yet. It hasn't been brought under the lordship of Jesus. It hasn't been healed by him yet. So here's what I want to say to you today. There is great hope. <laughs> and I want you to hear that. Even as I've been preparing this message and I've just thought about, for some of us, we've experienced such brokenness in our homes. For others of us, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out, can God heal the past? Can God heal the things that have happened? I want to tell you there is great hope because Jesus wants something so different for your family. He wants something so different from the, the interactions that maybe you're experiencing right now or have experienced. What Jesus wants is, for, is to be able to actually transform your wounds. That's what he wants to do. And he has the power to do that. So we're going to look at this together. Remember, I told you that often that the story of Lamech in the Scripture and so many of the stories of broken marriages and families in the Scripture are there to point us to someone else in the story. The story of Lamech points directly to someone and something else in the story. So we're going to jump from Genesis 4 to Matthew chapter 18. So in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus has come along, and Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and Peter, one of the 12 disciples, comes to Jesus, and the two of them begin to have a conversation about forgiveness and about wounds and about offenses and how do we handle that. So this is the conversation in Matthew 18, verse 21, between Peter and Jesus. It says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, if you've been paying attention, I hope you've been paying attention in this sermon up to this point. I hope you're realizing Jesus and Peter are having a conversation about who? Lamech. That's who they're talking about. Maybe you've read this passage of scripture before and been like seven and 77. Where'd they get that from? Jesus and Peter both would have grown up in, a, in Jewish context where they would have learned and memorized huge parts of the scripture. They're having a commentary. They're having a conversation about Lamech. That's what they're talking about. And here's what's happening. Peter is basically saying to Jesus, he thinks he's being very generous because in Jesus' day, the rabbis taught that, a per, that you only had to forgive a person by law up to three times. So three times the law requires you to forgive. After that, you don't have to forgive anybody after they, when they wound you or hurt you. That's what the law taught. And so Peter, he's referencing the story of Lamech. He thinks he's being very generous. And he says, Jesus, 
He's hoping for the gold star here. He's like, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Up to seven times, right? Like if God, you know, said he would avenge Cain up to seven times, surely we're, we're called to forgive up to seven times. And Jesus ups the ante. He takes, it, he takes it way beyond what Peter is thinking in order to make his real point. And what he says is actually not seven. Why don't we just go the whole way just like Lamech did? If Lamech wanted to avenge himself 77 times, you can forgive 77 times. Which just seems crazy, Right? And Jesus is, is making this statement because he's trying to make his real point. And the real point Jesus is trying to make is he's trying to say to Peter, Peter, when you have me, you can stop counting offenses. When you have me, you can stop keeping score. Well, they offended me, but then I forgave. But then they offended me, then I forgave. Then I you can stop doing that. When you have me, you can just forgive. When you have me, you actually have the power to be able to forgive when someone wrongs you. When someone slights you, when, something, when someone takes from you or does something to you, in, in me, you have the power to forgive. Jesus is saying the gospel can actually transform our wounds. It can transform our responses. It can transform everything about the way that we interact with our family and with, with our friends when it comes to this area of forgiveness. When we have Christ at the center of our lives and when we make him the center of our families, what happens is we no longer need the way of Lamech in order to make things right, in order to, to get revenge, in order to settle the score. Someone has to pay, right? Someone did pay. Jesus, at the cost of his own life, gave up his life and paid the price for all of your sin, all of my sin, all of the sins of anyone who ever would offend you, and it's in that place, it's in that forgiveness that we've received that we can actually turn and forgive others. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine I have $100 to my name, and that's it. I've got 100 bucks, and then I'm broke. That's all I've got. And imagine someone steals $50 from me. That's called a crisis, isn't it? When all you got is $100 and somebody steals $50 from you, that turns your world upside down. If someone steals 50 bucks from me and I've only got 100, I'm going after them. I'm doing nothing else but going after them. That's going to consume my entire focus. I'm going to call the police. I'm going to go on an all-out manhunt. I'm going to take back my $50 when I find them. I might take even more than $50 when I find them for the hardship that they put me through, right? Now, imagine I'm a billionaire, I've got billions and billions of dollars, and someone steals $50 from me. Is there a different response in that situation? Do, do, I, do I respond differently when I'm a billionaire and someone takes $50 from me? Yeah, is, is it even a big deal? I mean, yeah, it's still wrong. They still shouldn't have done it. But do I feel like I personally need to go after them and pin them to the ground? See, see that's what we have in Jesus we have riches so great because of the cross and because of the resurrection. We have forgiveness for our sins, forgiveness for our debts that we've done that is so great and so overwhelming that when we really come in contact with that, when we really understand that, what happens is it transforms our wounds. It transforms the way we respond to others so that when our kids do something, when they trigger us, when they do, there's a 10 and 2 you know, potential there. Something happens in our home. Instead of blowing up like a volcano and getting angry, we're able to look at them with totally different eyes through the gospel 
and we're able to say, oh, I remember when I did that stuff. Or what, what's, what's going on? There's empathy. What is going on inside of them that they feel like that's what they've got to do, that they feel like that's the way they've got to act right now? That, that's what happens, and it begins to transform us. It begins to transform the way that we see others and we see everything in our lives. I've never talked about this publicly until this series. Um, one of the most painful years of my life, and, I, and my wife would say of our life together, was our son Alan's junior year of high school. He's 20 years old now, so this, is, this was a few years ago. In Alan's junior year of high school, uh, there was a, a, a young man who befriended our son Alan. He sought him out. And Carrie and I, from a mile away, they went to the same school together. From a mile away, Carrie and I could just tell this, this kid is bad news. Uh, he's not going to be a good influence on our son. But Alan, at that time in life, uh, was, he needed that acceptance. He was struggling. He was hurting in some areas of life. And so I think he wanted that acceptance, that, that friend group. And so very quickly, Alan and this kid became fast friends. And then Alan began hanging out with this group of kids. And almost instantaneously, his behavior and his posture toward us changed. He started lying. He started breaking trust with us. Um, he began vaping and drinking and doing drugs. We began to find the evidence of this. And, I mean, he would lie about it when confronted. And we, it was just, to be very honest, it was one of, one of the most painful things I can even describe. I think there's nothing more painful than parent pain, if you've ever experienced it. And the truth is, we felt like we were losing our son. I mean, that's what it felt like. We were literally losing our, our son and maybe the lowest point in that year that I can remember for me personally was I remember I got a phone call and I had to go down and I had to sit down and talk with a detective. Because what had happened is Alan and this group of kids had uh, snuck out and uh, he had snuck out of the house and they had gone uh, late at night to a construction site. And they were drinking and they, uh, you know, did, did some damage to the construction site, pushed over some porta potties, just did some stuff and didn't realize there was some video cameras watching this. And so now I'm getting called and I have to go down and talk to a detective about whether or not my son is going to be included in the legal action that's now being taken. It was awful. It was just terrible. And this thing began to happen between Alan and I. Our relationship deteriorated during that year in, in some just horrible, painful, dramatic ways. Because what would happen is the more he would do these things and the further he would pull away from Carrie and I, the bigger and the louder and the angrier I would get. So I would say, what is the matter with you? What are, what are you doing this for? And the more I, I would demand and talk, the more he would pull away. And the more he would pull away, the bigger and louder and angrier I would get. Because that really encourages someone to open up, right? And there was a story I was making up inside of my own head. I couldn't see it at the time. I can see it now. At the time, I couldn't really see it. I couldn't define it. But what was happening is I was transmitting my own pain to him. And yeah, there's all this stuff he's doing and the way he's behaving, but there was all this stuff that I was bringing to the situation as well, pain from my past. And I was transmitting my own pain to him because the story I was making up in my head went something like this. His mistakes must be a reflection of me. I'm, I'm a pastor, after all. I thought about you. I thought about what are people going to think if they find out this is what my son is doing? What are they going to think about me? 
What are they gonna think about the job I've done as a parent? And so that was what I was thinking. His mistakes are just this reflection of me. And the more I just kind of believed that, the more I acted out of that, the more I responded to that, the worse and worse and worse things got. And I remember kind of the breakthrough moment. Uh, Alan was actually at home uh, during one of the times he had been suspended from school. He was at home and I was here at church and I was just, I was just crying out to God. I was just in this time of, of prayer by myself and I'm just crying out to God and I'm, I'm weeping. I'm just saying, God, would you help us? Would you help us with our son? Would you do something? Would you intervene? It was this desperate moment for me and I, I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me not in an audible voice, nothing like that, but in some ways that voice that's louder than all the other voices and you know it when you hear it. And here's what I heard the Holy Spirit say to me. I heard, I heard him say, Brian, stop treating your son like his mistakes are a reflection of you. Your job is to reflect me, the father, to him. That's your job. You know the, because I know the father. I know the forgiveness he's offered me. I know the, the debt and the mistakes I've made. And the Lord just said, stop treating him like his mistakes are a reflection of you. Your job is just to reflect me, his true father to him. And so that day I decided to cancel the rest of my meetings that I had here at church. And I decided to go home and visit my son. So what I did is I went and I bought Chick-fil-A. It was right around lunchtime because Christian chicken fixes everything somehow. And so I'll never forget, walk. I opened the door of our house and I've got my Chick-fil-A in my hand. And Alan, I remember he was sitting right there at the kitchen counter. We'd taken his phone, we'd taken everything. And he's just angry, you know. So I walk in the door and I've got my, my bag of Chick-fil-A. And I remember he just looks at me, he goes, what are you doing here? And I just said, I got us some lunch and I just want to spend some time with you. And he goes, what are you doing this for? Why are you doing this? And I said, because you're my kid. And I love being with you. I'm not going anywhere. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, I'm not leaving. And I asked him to forgive me for the way I'd been angry. And we spent the rest of that day together. And I'm not gonna tell you that it all turned around in one moment. I'm not gonna say that it was just all better because it wasn't, it was a process. It was a long process. But that was the first day, that was the first moment I ever saw any kind of softening in his heart and any kind of turn that began. And eventually he did turn away from this friend. He did walk away from this group of friends. He did start making decisions for his own life and wanting a better future and wanting a better life. He just got engaged this uh, past summer to an incredible girl. Carrie and I are so proud of him and so proud of, uh, and so excited for his future. And just, um, it's just all that God has for him in his future. And I'm so thankful for the relationship I have with him now. But, Man, it, it, was, it was rough to get there. And I guess what I want you to hear from that uh, is that when you have Jesus, when you have him at the center of your life, when you have him at the center of your family, when you have the riches of his grace, when you have the, the true riches of his forgiveness, he can truly transform anything.
that you face. He can truly transform anything that happens in your family. I asked uh, Alan, I said, is it okay if I asked his permission if I could share this story? And he's a very private person. I, I half expected him to say no. When I asked him, he, he said, absolutely, you can share that story. It's part of my past. It's my past. It's not part of my future. That's the power of what God can do. And so here's what I wanted to do. Actually, I don't show that next slide. I had some like practical things for you to go do. And I was in here praying last night. I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, the end of this message is not to tell people to go work harder, to go try harder, to go in their own strength and go work. It's, you know, we have this thing as preachers, we think it's not a good sermon unless you give people like three practical takeaways or whatever, you know how that works. And sometimes that is the right thing to do. So I had three practical takeaways, I'm not gonna give them to you. I wonder if you'd just be willing to pray with me. Just because I wonder, we need something for some of us, we need breakthrough in our families. We need breakthrough in our family generations in the pain and, the, and the, the death that has been visited upon us in our families that goes beyond what we and our human power can do. So would you bow with me? So Jesus, we wanna to come to you. Um, God, we recognize uh, that sometimes we don't have it within ourselves to stop our own anger. We don't have it within ourselves to forgive others. We don't have it within ourselves to turn around the tide of a relationship that's gone sour in our families. And the reason is because we don't have it ourselves. We need the Father. We need you to forgive us and to father us. We need you to remind us and to bring us face to face with what you've forgiven us of and the grace and the mercy that we walk in each day. And so right now, God, I just pray for any place in our world, any place in our lives, for those who are listening online, for watching online, or for those who are in this room, for any of us, God, in our lives, any place where we are transmitting our pain, we turn it to you. We turn to you words that were spoken over us as children. We turn to you words that we have spoken in anger that we are ashamed of and we wish had never happened and we wish we could take back. We turn over to you relationships in our world, in our lives that we can't control, in our families that we can't control the outcome of, children that are prodigals that we can't make turn around and come home. And we say, Jesus, would you transform our pain and would you help us to reflect you? Help us to reflect you in our families, in our conversations, in our words. Uh, Jesus, we need you. This generation growing up needs you. They need a heavenly father who does not grow weary, who does not faint, who does not fall short, and who can be trusted. You can be a better parent to our kids than we ever could. You can be a better parent to us than our human fathers or mothers ever could. So I'm praying for healing, Jesus. I'm praying for reconciliation. I'm praying for a new path, generational curses to be broken and a new uh, journey to come to pass. We know you can do those things by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask for it now in Jesus' name. Everyone said.